Welcome to Clinical Neurology Podcast where you will learn over 12 episodes how to localize a lesion in neurology based on history taking and physical examination. The podcast is meant for medical students and to make them enjoy learning neurology. Medicine, pediatrics, psychiatry, critical care, neurology residents, general practitioners and nurse practitioners will find it beneficial. Study materials and clinical resources for the podcast are available in show description and at neurologyteachingclub.com website. I am your host Dr. Krishnadas NC and let's get started. In this session we will discuss how to approach an unconscious patient. A comatose patient is always a challenge in the emergency department. The etiology may vary from an easily correctable metabolic problem like hypoglycemia to a life-threatening one like non-convulsive epilepsy. The patient won't be able to give history and the clinical examination is limited as the patient is unconscious. We should know our limitations and what findings to look for in the clinical examination. It will help save time and come to an early diagnosis which can be life-saving. At the end of this session, we will be able to distinguish coma and its mimic, do focused history taking and clinical examination of an unconscious patient, identify various classic clinical findings in coma and localize coma from these findings consciousness is a state of normal brain activity where one is aware of both the self and the environment and can respond to internal and external stimuli sleep is a standard variant of consciousness from which a person can be aroused to wakefulness the level of consciousness is a spectrum which can vary from drowsiness through stupor to coma In drowsiness the patient is easily arousable and can maintain attention for some time but then goes back to sleep in a stupor the patient responds to painful stimuli only while in coma there is no response to any external stimuli the drowsy and stuporous patients are often confused some conditions can mimic coma these include locked in state the patient is completely paralyzed and mute due to an extensive ventral pontine infarct The patient is conscious and alert but cannot move or speak because of weakness. They can communicate through eye blink. Akinetic mutism. The patient is partially or fully awake but is immobile and mute. They may be able to recall the events later. It occurs with lesions involving the diencephalomesencephalic reticular formation, frontal lobes or severe hydrocephalus. Abulia. It is a severe apathy caused by a lesion involving bilateral medial frontal lobes. It is a milder form of akinetic mutism. The patient has extreme mental and physical slowness and diminished ability to initiate activity. The consciousness is preserved. Catatonia. It occurs in schizophrenia and major depression. The patient is immobile, mute and often has waxy flexibility or catalepsy. Careful examination will show responsiveness like an eye blink to a visual threat. Though it resembles akinetic mutism, the clinical evidence of structural brain damage like hypertonia, hyperreflexia and frontal release signs are absent in catatonia. EEG will be normal in catatonia but shows slowing in akinetic mutism. Vegetative state. It occurs during recovery from a coma. The eyelids open periodically, giving a feeling of wakefulness, but the patient does not respond to internal or external stimuli. Sleep-wake cycles are present. respiratory cardiac and autonomic functions are present and they will have a normal cough yawning and swallowing minimally conscious state it is less severe than the vegetative state where the patient will show some crude motor and vocal response spontaneously or occasionally to touch or other stimuli the chances of recovery are better than in a vegetative state 
It is always better to give a short description of the patient's findings than use terms like vegetative or minimally conscious state. Using these terms can often produce confusion as different authors define them differently. The anatomic substrate of consciousness. The consciousness is maintained by the interaction between the ascending reticular activating system and the cerebral hemispheres. The ascending reticular activating system lies in the paramedian tegmental region of the pons and the midbrain. It is a polysynaptic fiber system extending from the superior half of pons to the posterior portion of the hypothalamus and thalamic reticular formation. The thalamus is connected to the cortex through the thalamocortical projections. Structural and functional lesions of bilateral diffuse cortical, thalamic, hypothalamic and brainstem tegmentum can cause coma. Metabolic causes like hypoglycemia, anoxia and liver disease are more common causes of coma than structural lesions. Sedative drugs act at least partly by their action on ascending reticular activating system. Unilateral cortical lesions only rarely produce coma. The medial longitudinal fasciculus lie between the neurons of the midbrain and pontine portions of ascending reticular activating system. So coma due to brainstem lesions will affect medial longitudinal fascicle causing eye movement abnormalities which can often help localize coma. Approaching a patient with unconsciousness. Initial assessment. Whenever a comatose patient comes to the emergency room, the priority is to check if the airway, breathing and circulation ABC are normal. A rapid initial assessment is done and critical interventions are done as required. Ensure that the vitals are stable, blood sugar is normal and the patient is not having seizures. Look for subtle findings of seizures like nystagmoid jerks of the eyes. If there is any suspicion of seizures, anti-epileptic drugs should be started. History Once the patient is stabilized, it is crucial to get a detailed history. Getting history from a witness to the onset of coma is critical, either directly or via phone. The beginning of unconsciousness, sudden, rapid or gradual, gives a clue to the diagnosis. Sudden onset suggests trauma, seizures or subarachnoid hemorrhage. Rapid onset suggests a metabolic cause like hypoglycemia and gradual onset may suggest a subdural hematoma. Associated symptoms give diagnostic clues. Fever and vomiting at onset suggest meningitis. History of headache may suggest intracranial space occupying lesion or subarachnoid hemorrhage. Past history and medication history will provide hints to the diagnosis. Past history of liver disease suggest possible hepatic encephalopathy. A recent journey to an endemic area may be the only clue to cerebral malaria. History of psychiatric treatment may be the clue to deliberate self-harm. An elderly on oral hypoglycemic agents will give a hint about hypoglycemia. The history of alcoholism can be misleading. These patients are prone to subdural hemorrhage, hepatic encephalopathy, seizures and nutritional and metabolic causes of coma. We must consider all these possibilities before attributing the unresponsiveness to alcohol intoxication. General Examination A detailed head-to-foot examination is critical in the evaluation of an unconscious patient. The nutritional status, jaundice, abnormal order, neck stiffness and fundus examination will give valuable information to diagnose the etiology. Bruising on the skin behind the pinna called the battle sign may be the clue to a skull fracture. An ishkar on skin may be the only clue for scrub typhus encephalitis. Multiple injection markings on the skin may be a clue to IV drug abuse producing the encephalopathy. Neck stiffness may be the clue to subarachnoid hemorrhage. Fundus papilledema may be a clue for an intracranial space occupying lesion. Vitals gives diagnostic clues. High blood pressure may indicate hypertensive encephalopathy or posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome. A low BP may be the clue to Addisonian crisis, sepsis, myocardial infarction or barbiturate poisoning. 
respiratory pattern. Respiratory patterns have localizing significance in an unconscious patient. The pons has the pneumotaxic and apneustic centers while the medulla has the inspiratory and expiratory centers. The pneumotaxic center is located in the upper part of the pons. It controls the rate and pattern of breathing. It acts as an inspiratory off switch and is responsible for limiting inspiration. It works opposite the apneustic center which promotes inspiration by stimulating the medullary inspiratory neurons. The dorsal respiratory group in the medulla initiates inspiration while the ventral respiratory group initiates expiration. It is important to remember that drugs can affect these regions and mimic a structural lesion. In normal healthy individuals, after hyperventilation with 5 deep breaths and carbon dioxide washout, there will be a brief period of apnea lasting less than 10 seconds. The stimulus for rebreathing after a PCO2 fall originates in four brain structures. Post-hyperventilation apnea lasts for 20 to 30 seconds in patients with bilateral hemispheric lesions. Chain Stokes Breathing These are brief periods of hypopnea regularly alternating with an even shorter duration of apnea. After the apneic phase, respiratory movement amplitude increases to a peak before slowly waning off to the following apnea. It represents a more severe degree of normal post-hyperventilation apnea due to bilateral cortical dysfunction. The respiratory drive becomes dependent on the PCO2 levels as the smoothening effect of forebrain structures is lost. In the hyperventilation stage, the patient will be more alert. The pupils will become more dilated from the otherwise diencephalic meiotic pupil and decorticate posturing may disappear. Chainstokes breathing is caused by widespread cortical dysfunction, involvement of descending pathways up to upper pons and metabolic disturbances like uremia, cardiac failure, diffuse hypoxia, etc. New onset chainstokes breathing may suggest an impending transtendorial herniation in a patient with supratendorial mass lesion. Brainstem hyperventilation Patients with midbrain and pontine lesions can have rapid and prolonged hyperventilation. Lowering the local CSF pH and stimulating the respiratory centers of the medulla is one of the postulated mechanisms. Kusmol's breathing is deep, rapid breathing seen in metabolic acidosis. Apneustic breathing In apneustic breathing, there is a prolonged inspiratory time followed by a long inspiratory pause. The air is retained for several seconds and released. The expiratory time is short and a pontine lesion usually causes it. Cluster breathing it is a cluster of breaths following each other in an irregular sequence. It results from low pontine or high medullary lesions. Ataxic breathing The breathing pattern is entirely irregular. It is called the atrial fibrillation of breathing. The inspiration is of different amplitudes and lengths and intermixed with variable periods of apnea. It is often seen in terminally ill patients and suggests impending respiratory failure. The site of the lesion is the dorsomedial medulla. A paramedian medullary infarct, bleed or tumor can produce it. The classical breathing described by Biot in severe meningitis is ataxic breathing. Central hypoventilation The pathway of voluntary respiration from the cortex descends via the corticospinal tract. The automatic respiration fibers from the medulla descends in the ventrolateral cord with anatomic separation of inspiratory and expiratory pathways. The central hypoventilation can be caused by unilateral caudal brainstem infarction. In the ontine curse, there is a loss of automatic breathing in sleep in non-comatose patients. The involvement of pondomedullary reticular formation and nucleus ambiguous can cause loss of automatic respiration or ondine curse. If the nucleus tractus solitarius is also involved, severe respiratory failure with both voluntary and automatic responses is lost. Bilateral high cervical cord lesion can also produce central hypoventilation. 
neurological examination. The neurological examination is grossly limited in an unconscious patient. There are only few findings one can elicit in these patients. These include level of consciousness or Glasgow comma scale, pupils, eye movements, brainstem reflexes, and motor response. Level of consciousness. The neurological examination starts with defining the state of consciousness using the Glasgow comma scale. GCS is simple, can be done by any healthcare worker, and is easily reproducible. It objectively assesses how the patient progresses and indicates the need to reassess or change management. It should be documented at arrival and periodically after that. Pupil. The pupillary light reflex is resistant to metabolic dysfunction. Pupillary abnormalities, especially when unilateral, indicate structural lesion of the midbrain or third cranial nerve. The size, shape, symmetry and response to light of the pupil gives important diagnostic clues. It is critical to rule out any medication given to the patient that might affect the pupillary size and reactivity. Atropine, glutathamide, barbiturates, succinylcholine, lidocaine, phenothiazines, methanol and aminoglycoside antibiotics can cause an unreactive pupil. Sedative drugs affect pupil in very high doses only. Hypothermia and anoxia can also cause an unreactive pupil, which if persistent carries a poor prognosis. Diencephalic pupil. Bilateral diencephalic dysfunction, metabolic coma and sleep can cause small pupils that react well to light. Unilateral hypothalamic lesion. A unilateral hypothalamic lesion can cause meiosis and anhydrosis on the side of the body, ipsilateral to the lesion. Midbrain lesions. Tectal or pretectal lesions affecting the posterior commissure abolishes the light reflux. The pupils are mid-sized or slightly large. The pupil can have spontaneous oscillations in size called the hippus. Celiospinal reflux, the dilatation of the pupil on pinching on the skin of the neck is present. Tegmental lesions involving the third nerve nucleus. There is irregular constriction of the sphincter of the iris. This results in a pear-shaped pupil or displacement of pupil to one side called the midbrain corectopia. The pupil is mid-sized and lacks light or celiospinal reflux. Pontine tegmental lesion. The pontine tegmental lesions will cause a small pupil due to interruption of the descending sympathetic pathways. Pontine hemorrhages will cause a pinpoint pupil. It is due to sympathetic damage and parasympathetic irritation. The pupil will react when observed under a magnifying glass. Lateral pontine, lateral medulla and ventrolateral spinal cord lesions. Lesions in these sites produce an ipsilateral Horner syndrome. Oculomotor nerve palsy. Uncle herniation can cause ipsilateral oculomotor palsy. Pupillary dilatation occurs before extraocular muscle involvement. Eye movements. Voluntary eye movements cannot be tested in an unconscious patient. The examination of ocular motility depends on the reflex eye movements, namely oculocephalic reflex and oculovestibular reflex. Oculocephalic reflex is tested by dorsi maneuver. It is elicited by moving the head from side to side through 70 degrees or vertically from passive neck flexion to passive neck extension. Eye movements in the direction opposite to the head movements are noticed. It depends on the integrity of the oculomotor nuclei and their interconnecting tracts that extends from the midbrain to the pons and the medulla. The movement is usually suppressed in a conscious patient with an intact frontal lobe. So, the presence of oculocephalic reflux suggests reduced cortical influence and intact brainstem pathways. It is lost in extensive brainstem damage and deep metabolic coma. It should not be tested in patients with a suspected spine injury. The oculovestibular reflux is elicited by instilling cold or warm water into the external auditory canal. Before doing the test, it is essential to make sure that the tympanic membrane is intact. 20 ml of ice-cold water is instilled into the external auditory canal over 30 seconds after keeping the head elevated by 30 degrees. 
After a brief latent period, both eyes will deviate to the side of cold water irrigation. In the unconscious patient, the central corrective nystagmus in opposite direction will not occur. The cow's acronym of oculovestibular reflux is in the direction of nystagmus, which is in the direction of central fast component. This will not happen in an unconscious patient. The oculovestibular reflux is resistant to metabolic changes and is one of the last brainstem refluxes to disappear in deep metabolic coma. It is lost in structural lesions of the brainstem. A lot of spontaneous eye movement abnormalities can be seen in a comatose patient. Many of them have localizing value. Standing near the patient and observing the eyes for a minute or two will help pick up most spontaneous eye movement abnormalities. Periodic alternating gaze or ping pong gaze. There will be a rowing eye movement from one extreme of the horizontal gaze to the other and back. The horizontal rowing eye movement suggests an intact brainstem. It usually occurs in bilateral cerebral dysfunction. Repetitive divergence. It is occasionally seen in patients with metabolic encephalopathy. The eyes are mid-positioned or slightly divergent at rest. They slowly deviate out to the extreme and rapidly return to the primary position. Nystagmoid jerk of one eye. It can be vertical, horizontal or rotatory. It usually suggests a mid or lower pontine lesion. Patients with non-convulsive electrographic status epilepticus can have horizontal or vertical nystagmoid jerks which may be the only clue to the seizure. Ocular bobbing. There is brisk bilateral downward movement of the eyes with a slow return to the mid-position. It occurs with pontine lesions. Ocular dipping is slow downward eye movement with a fast return to mid-position. It occurs in diffuse brain dysfunction. A way to remember this is that ocular dipping is like dipping hands in hot water. The hands goes down slowly. On touching the hot water, it comes up quickly. Ocular bobbing is the reverse with fast movement downwards and slow upwards. Reverse ocular bobbing and dipping. They are similar to ocular bobbing and dipping, but the direction of movement is upwards rather than downwards. In reverse ocular bobbing, there is fast upward eye movement followed by a slow return to mid-position. In reverse ocular dipping, there is slow upward eye movement followed by quick return to mid-position. Pre-tectal pseudobobbing. These are arrhythmic, repetitive downward and inward eye movements in a V pattern. The frequency range from 1 every 3 seconds to 2 per second. It is usually seen in acute hydrocephalus and usually warrants emergency surgical intervention. Vertical ocular myoclonus. It is a pendular vertical isolated eye movement seen in large pontine strokes. The frequency is about 2 Hz. It may be associated with palatal myoclonus. Abnormality of gaze. Lateral gaze. There are two lateral gaze centers. The frontal gaze center will help you to look to the opposite side and pontine gaze center or parapontine reticular formation to the same side. So, when there is right frontal lesion, the patient will have gaze palsy to the left and gaze preference to the right side. One easy way to remember this is the patient's eye will deviate to the side of frontal lobe damage. Remember that a left pontine lesion can also cause gaze preference to the right side. In a left pontine lesion, the hemiplegia will be on the right, while in right frontal lesion, the hemiplegia will be on the left. The oculocephalic and oculovestibular maneuvers can move the eye to the peritic side in a frontal lesion but not in a pontine lesion. Disconjugate gaze. The involvement of the medial longitudinal vesicle will result in ipsilateral adduction impairment with normal vertical eye movements and pupils. The abducting nystagmus on the opposite side in internuclear ophthalmoplegia will not be present in a comatose patient. MLF involvement is commonly bilateral in an unconscious patient. Vertical gaze. In a patient with a light coma, an upward gaze can be tested by gently touching the cornea with a wisp of cotton after keeping the eyelids open. The eyeball tends to roll upwards due to the Bell's phenomenon. 
The vertical eye movements in a comatose patient can also be tested with dolce maneuver and vestibulocular reflex. Irrigating both eyes with warm water induces deviation upwards and cold water causes downward movement. Disconjugate vertical gaze in the resting position is called skew deviation. Persistent eye deviation below the horizontal median usually suggests a structural lesion of the midbrain tectum. Thalamic hemorrhage can cause a tonic downward deviation in the eyes with convergence. Tonic upgaze can occur with severe hypoxia. Midbrain lesions can produce vertical gaze palsy. Motor system examination. Examining the tone and reflexes has less clear localizing value in an unconscious patient. In most comatose patients, both plantar are usually upgoing. However, all attempts should be made to find out any localizing signs. If present, it helps in identifying the etiology of coma. Deep sternal pain can unmask the facial deviation or demonstrate the lack of movements on one side in a stuporous patient. Metabolic coma, except for hypoglycemia, usually has no localizing signs. Decorticate rigidity is characterized by adduction of the shoulder and arm, flexion at the elbow and flexion and pronation at the wrist. The leg is extended at the hip and knee. It can occur in metabolic encephalopathy or structural lesions involving the cerebral hemispheres. Decerebrate rigidity is associated with extension and pronation of the upper extremities and extension of the lower extremity with forced plantar flexion. Painful stimuli can cause ophisthotonus with hyperextension of the trunk and hyperpronation of the arms. It is associated with severe metabolic coma and structural lesion involving the brainstem. In experimental animals, decerebrate rigidity is caused by a transaction at the collicular level below the red nucleus. But clinically, most of the cases are produced by deep metabolic coma. Flaccidity in an unconscious patient, especially after a few days, should make one consider the possibility of critical illness polyneuropathy. In patients on steroids especially, the possibility of muscle necrosis or critical illness myopathy has to be considered. That finishes this episode. I was planning to finish the first season of clinical neurology with KD in 12 sessions. But some of you had requested for localization of bladder and cortical function. So I thought I would add those sessions as well. If you have any suggestions or comments, please feel free to message me on the Twitter account or on the Neurology Teaching Club website. Your comments and response are my fuel to keep going. Please do give a 5-star rating and write a review on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Please share the episode with your friends and on social media platforms if you found the content useful. Thanks for listening to Clinical Neurology Podcast. Kindly subscribe and review if you found it useful. You can follow Neurology Teaching Club Instagram account for exclusive figures of this podcast and visit our website neurologyteachingclub.com for more resources. The podcast and online content are meant for medical education only and should not be used to guide clinical decision making and treatment. You can find more of this podcast on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast or wherever you get your ear candy. It's KD signing off and until we meet next time, spread knowledge.